So I think one of the concerns or challenges about these like in of one studies when people think about them scientifically is that when they're, they, they want science to be replicable. And when they see these in of one type analyses, they think, well, it hasn't been replicated. Um, and of course, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has plenty of work on how to design these things. So you, they can have tests within one individual. But, um, you know, if we, if we just sort of take that as the uh, baseline critique. Uh, what, what do you what do you think? What's the, what's the first way to uh, to start? You know, attacking that non replicated belief. Sure, uh, that's a great question. And um, out of the uh, really out of the gate, my answer is um, you're right. It's not generalizable uh, to the population level, but that's also not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is really think about it as uh, wanting to be generalizable to the population of yourself. So all possible moments over time uh, for this health condition or this uh, recurrent pattern that you're seeing, that's what we're aiming to generalize over first and foremost. Now, having said that, um, one of the ways to bridge the conversation and to sort of walk it back a little bit is to say, oh, but for those of you familiar with things like meta-analyses or mixed effects models, things where you kind of aggregate across people, you're really treating each person sort of as a separate entity that has their own sort of personalized um, variation uh, about them. Uh, so it's that's the, the link, is this is also how we move from an end of one design to more generalizable design. And it's sort of... Uh, uh, it's it's similar to other uh, methods that have a tailoring component, like uh, just-in-time adaptive interventions, micro-randomized trials, where the, uh, the the treatment itself is actually moving, right? It's tailoring. Yeah, and I guess you know when people think about you know one of the, oh. one of the main questions is when people ask like, oh, should I take this treatment? You know, it isn't the question isn't will this work for the general population? It's will this work for me? Um, and so it seems to me that. Um, Obviously, I'm much more on your side of this where, uh, you know, people, when uh, when you're doing some in-of-one work, the disadvantage is that, of course, you lack uh, the power of numbers. But at the same time, you also are directly assessing um, number one, so to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, to, to build on that a little bit. Um, that's one of the, the reasons uh, these days N of one is so exciting or single case experimental designs as they've been long developed in psychology is traditionally those designs have uh, a very low power. But now we have data from uh, devices like this where you have very rich time streams. There are problems that go along with that, of course, as we both know, a lot of noise, um, but the, at least we have a, a lot more data per person. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's also the issue of... Uh, people being sufficiently dedicated to make use of the uh, now new modes of observation. You know, obviously you've uh, you've experimented on yourself um, and I, I've had some fun experimenting with a variety of medical devices on myself, um, all legal, of course. But, um, <laughs> but you know, th there's an element here where um, as far as well, like, when you think back about the general population, well, the problem with many people in the general population is that they don't actually have the dedication, for example, to uh, be doing continuous experiments on themselves, or they are not experimentally design oriented. Uh, so obviously, human humans with their own heuristics um, are s something of an odd and sort of fun thing to study in its own right. But it's humans with their own heuristics might not be the best people to observe. So I guess from your own experience, um, having tested uh, some of these in of one trials, maybe just talk about that for a bit. Uh, what you tested on yourself, what you thought, what were the challenges? Um, what you what you believe and what you don't believe, even given the results of your own work. Yeah, uh, it, it's a great, really, it's a a really kind of key question here. You're asking about engagement, uh, what's traditionally called compliance, right? 
uh, to, uh, um, in this case, like a, a behavioral treatment or something like that. And uh, you're right. A lot of the uh, engagement issues are uh, really kind of handled well when you have a highly compliant, highly adherent, highly engaged uh, trial participant. In this case, the one participant. And, Which is uh, why you need in of one because you can only usually find one of those per patient cohort to begin with. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Exactly. Like the actual measurement uh, method is is really um, really limiting in in many ways at this point. Um, but the 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 end of one trial that I ran with some friends, uh, we were all highly engaged, uh, really willing to try on devices. Uh, so that really wasn't an issue there. Mm -hmm. uh, the larger picture uh, is is it probably will have to do with uh, you know commercially wearable devices like this, like like a Fitbit, where a lot of people are now used to wearing them. Um, that sort of um, hints at um, you know the engagement is high because a lot of people wear them. So it it helps uh, at least on where I am in industry. It helps sort of uh, constrain your your population to be like, okay, well, this is amongst people who are willing to wear this kind of device, and there might be some you know hidden confounding behind that somewhere where it's like a maybe it's a, a population that's generally healthy. So then we have to make sure we know that when we generalize outside of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's always the advantage that when people are self-selecting into a rigorous or onerous. Uh, measurement process, observational process that that is obviously making a statement about the population in each. It's making something of a statement about the individual. Um, what was the other thing? I, I there, there's there's another uh, point there, but uh, flew, flew uh, the coop. What was it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really latched onto the engagement piece. So um, you were asking about challenges. Uh, yeah. So why don't you why don't you actually talk about the um, the, the the studies that you have done on yourself um, and, and what you thought. Thought about those. So, since the audience probably hasn't uh, read your publication, can you just tell us about that? Yeah, sure. There are really just just two at this point. Um, one was looking at uh, self tracked data, but it wasn't even digital data. It was data from my own self report over the time span of about seven years. Uh, I was recording my weight and physical activity and nutrition activities in Microsoft Excel, and uh, this was back in two thousand. 2006. So uh, there really were no uh, good wearable devices at the time, nor was I interested in them. Um, but uh, the process of analyzing that data uh, was, you know, being statistically trained was pretty intense because I had to ask about data collection. Obviously, it was self-report. So I um, had to contend with a lot of missing data uh, and uh, deal with those in kind of the standard textbook ways. Um, I'm recalling a, uh, a recent episode you did with another guest, uh, and I really resonated with it because these issues are issues that when you have this many um, challenges with a data set, you can't really do fancy statistical modeling or anything like that. You have to kind of go back to basics because there are a lot of them. Uh, missing data patterns is one of them. Um, if I wanted to compare something on two time scales, uh, uh, like, uh, or, or even like the same time scale, like a week, Part of that decision was made because I didn't observe all days of the week, so mm -hmm. I would smooth it out. I would, you know, aggregate it somehow. Uh, maybe uh, the average of whatever's available. Um, so missing data is a big issue. Uh, you have to make some decisions there. <laughs> um, and then, of course, uh, then there's autocorrelation, which is uh, one of the kind of unique components to a single case study or an end of one study. So then you have to deal with auto correlation in the residuals and check to see if the residuals are, uh, you know, fairly uh, uh, stationary after you fit your your model. 
when so you, there are those challenges. Yeah, when you mention autocorrelation, do you, are you talking mainly about the um, the autocorrelation of effect, or essentially the the effect of any given treatment can essentially uh, be uh, continued? I like it was like percolating through time. Um, is that the type of residual that you're thinking about, or is it uh, residuals in our autocorrelation of the actual uh, observed data? Because obviously the yeah, no, um, that's a great question. I've had to think about this deeply a lot. Uh, it, I was referring to autocorrelation of um, what's left over after you account for your past, uh, ah. your past outcomes, mm-hmm. um, as well as your past treatments. So it's whatever's left over. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me because I realized um, there are certain criteria for you know getting uh, uh, measures of variance or confidence that are are honest uh, that uh, are seem really strict, but they're not as strict once you start fitting these models. You start to realize it's really what's left over is what needs to be um, kind of uh, um, less autocorrelated. Uh, so the treatment thing you're talking about, yeah, that's also an issue, but you start to uh, address that by putting it in your model in some way or accounting for past treatments, past treatment uh, yeah, treatment levels. Cool. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, talk about your light bulb moment because obviously when people have them, um, it's worth trying to gather what you can from them. Um, so what what was the sort of data set and what was the, the problem that gave rise to your light bulb moment? Um, was it presumably that you had some model and you noticed that the um, autocorrelation of your residuals uh, was something that you could actually measure in? Like, did you have an explanation for it or what? So just feel free to go back, set the full stage and we'll figure out what that is. If you don't mind. Yeah, I, I think it was a it was a drawn out light bulb moment. Really, is what it was, um, because occasionally I'll remember this this realization, but I can't quite place when I first uh, started uh, thinking about it. But well, if if the light bulb moment isn't drawn out, it just means it's flickering like a horror movie, which isn't <laughs> good. But yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, something like a fluorescent lamp. Um, uh, a lot of it really was born of. Uh, wanting to be rigorous about estimating the variance of, uh, you know, components like a, a coefficient in a model. Um, and as a statistician thinking, how do I do this? Okay, well, in, in the standard case, if it's not N of 1, then, you know, obviously you need the independence assumption to hold and you can assess that. But in this case, uh, what is the complement? Oh, okay, it's this idea called stationarity. Okay, let me look at that. Let me drill down into that. And then as I went into it um, and started fitting, you know, each uh, kind of like an ARIMA model. Each, just just each very outcome. quickly, what was the actual data set that you're using? Was it, um, yeah, yeah, so like, yeah, yeah like gotcha. way, way, yeah. super basic, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I, it's always latent in my head. It was, uh, for this, uh, there were two data sets. There was the uh, physical activity and weight self-reported data mm-hmm. uh, that I was just talking about. So like and an then, accelerometer? Um, um, it's like an accelerometer in your weight, or is there uh, more? Yeah, no, this was actually uh, just weight over many, many months. Okay. So it was self-reported weight, uh, average weight per week, and average mm-hmm. physical activity per week, um, measured as uh, self-reported uh, activity over above uh, moderate walking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the original data set. Um, but then every analysis I did subsequent to that kind of drilled this idea into my head. And those were those involved... Uh, tracking devices. One of them involved a, a continuous glucose monitor. Um, and then the subsequent ones have involved my Fitbit, mm-hmm. my sleep data, my steps data, and my heart rate data. Mm-hmm. So you you would have these things like you, you have your self-reported uh, physical activity. 
You have mm-hmm. your, and I'll also, if you make a quick mental note, let's swing back on that uh, topic later. Cause um, yeah, unfortunately I, I don't have my pen and paper, uh, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's try to remember to come back to that, but you have your, oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, so you have your self-reported physical activity. You have your uh, continuous glucose monitoring, CGM. Um, you have your Fitbit information. So other things like, I presume, heart rate, um, SpO2, stuff like that. Um, and then you have your weight is, I presume, the outcome of interest in, in this regard. Yeah, so in the original study, uh, weight uh, weight change was the outcome of interest. Mm-hmm. This was a self-report study. And at the time, uh, I didn't have any devices at all. Physical activity was the exposure I was interested in. Uh, did that affect my weight in a regular fashion? Did it affect my weight trend, uh, like change in weight in a regular fashion? Uh, I didn't realize how hard of an outcome mm-hmm. that would be at the time, but that was originally it. Um, in more yeah, recent work, it's a super work, fickle outcome. Just like to throw <laughs> some things in. One, obviously, there's um, it, it's a floor, and especially if you're looking at change, um, it's obviously air prone. So there's a floor. The your um, proportion of change obviously uh, increases as you lose as you get as you get lose weight, right? Um, so, um, mm. there, there's an issue. Essentially there's a bound on your, um, there's a bound on it. Um, also things just like, you know, it isn't just, for example, body fat that causes weight. You can be losing it via sweat, bodily fluids. There's a number of things, um, that can change it on a very short time scale basis. Um, mm-hmm. so go, go on. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to just quickly help the listeners tick off some of the things that would cause a lot of noise in this outcome of interest. Right. No. And, and, uh, the thought that triggers, uh, this is good for your listeners also kind of developing methods and stuff is really to be, to be like really completely transparent. That paper, which is a causal inference paper, I wrote it because, um, I wanted to, uh, showcase how this method could be used, not necessarily for that data set, but that was the data set I had at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so it really was almost a, it was literally a convenience data set. I had all these data. Uh, I knew they it wasn't going to be the best uh, data set to showcase uh, this method. The method itself, I wanted to put out there as a way of targeting the things I was really interested in, which was things like um, irritable bowel syndrome, migraines, asthma, very mm-hmm. idiosyncratic, personalized conditions. Yeah. So, so that's why it's really messy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, that was by convenience, not by design. <laughs> cool. And so getting back to the um, autocorrelated errors issue, mm-hmm. was it that, um, sh- sh- I'll just let, let you go from there. Yeah, the, um, so that issue, uh, I started really having to grapple with on, on the timescale of activity data, uh, which uh, again, recalling your past episode, it's every, you know, every 15 minutes for our study, we had a, a Freestyle Libre uh, CGM device. So it measures... Uh, not sorry, not 15 minutes. Every 15, I think it's every 15 seconds. So it's really fine grain. Oh, that's super fine um, grain, yeah. Yeah, you know what? What's the battery on that thing look like? <laughs> might be 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Like, what's yeah. <laughs> 15 minutes sounds sounds more correct? Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a little patch, just like the Dexcom. <laughs> yeah, the battery would be that would be crazy. Um, I and so. Uh, we had our primary outcomes for that study, which were very much just, you know, what's the, the mean level of, uh, in this case, like uh, your blood glucose, uh, we logged, transformed it, 
mm-hmm. low blood glucose um, um, af- the day after treatment, the day after uh, you, we were exposed to sleep deprivation. <laughs> um, and we had two other outcomes. Um, but what I really wanted to dig into was uh, a post-hoc view of this, which is really an idea I had in mind from the beginning, which was to look at the trend of your blood glucose throughout the following day mm-hmm. after a night of sleep deprivation. So in, mo- in trying to figure out how to model that trend uh, and control for confounders, the controlling part, um, putting, you know, in this case, just putting them in a model, is really what made me think, okay, so what am I looking for here? Do I need every component of the model to be sort of stationary and have a common mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the course of doing that, it, it really sunk in like, I think all I really need is the residual, what's left over needs to be stationary after you explain. So something can kind of move up and down, but the point is that the modeling assumption is that everything else that bounces around it doesn't bounce around systematically. It just is really random. Um, so that was sort of connected to this light bulb moment about, ah, the residual, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Just like they teach you in econometrics too. It's like, it's, it's the conditional, um, residual after you control for X, that's mm-hmm. what it needs to be locked down as fairly independent in some way. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, I'll stop there for now. Uh, I could keep going. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I remember the one of the things that I've forgotten previously, which was the idea of um, one of the things I think is really uh, promising about wearables when we come to these N of one possibilities. Because I believe that N of one inference is something where, yes, it is scientifically challenging, but that is no reason to back away from it. Um, it's a reason to essentially to dig in and try to get the most out of it as possible um, because it has so many other uh, inductive advantages. Um, particularly that you aren't averaging out other using other people's data to decide for you. Um, but uh, very quickly, uh, the we've talked a little bit about you know how uh, essentially it's fairly motivated individuals who tend to engage in these types of studies and to execute them because effectively the type of person who can execute an end of one study and generate any type of data is already extremely, I would say, anomalous from what would be the general clinical population. Um, especially the clinical population who needs health, uh, who needs uh, some type of clinical intervention at that time. Um, but one of the advantages is that when you are getting your data back and you're not blinded to it, so you're essentially you're getting your data back as you go, that that essentially creates a positive feedback mechanism by which people can effectively be more motivated to stay uh, uh, compliant with the requirements. So it's one of the things where, yeah, sure, you the, the subject is not blinded, to results as you go along, but at the same time, you're maximizing compliance uh, for that. Is that is that is that one of the things that you've sort of latched on to as a, as a possibility or one, one of the advantages? Yeah, I haven't uh, experienced that myself in any of my uh, my upfront work with uh, teammates, but that is something that uh, uh, has occurred to me just in the world of N of one moving forward. You know, seeing a lot of other papers in the literature where then you know. Um, on a more logistical note, the way you would deal with that is you would start to adjust. Then it's an adapt, sort of this adaptive end of one where if it's a trial, you do the trial part, but then um, the second time you do the trial, you allow uh, the, all of the means uh, and whatnot to shift because now uh, the relationship, may, it might be stronger because the, the participant is more engaging with the, the intervention. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's, it, it's, it, it's something I've only started to really think about um, because 
out of the box. The thing N of one really shines when you have a recurring set of patterns that are very stable over time. But to your point, what if uh, they get better? You know, I start to benefit more from uh, this intervention. Uh, then that needs to shift. And uh, and thankfully, you know, there's uh, some folks that have started doing that work. It starts to resemble almost more of a, I guess, like a sort of micro-randomized or a dynamic treatment regime. Yeah. That scheme, you know. Yeah, you know, the, the dynamic treatment regime is actually sort of what I had latched on to as uh, one of these things where obviously, well, I, maybe, maybe we should just discuss this. How much of end of one work is essentially you... Uh, changing the treatment over time versus how much of it is effectively just evaluating one treatment and seeing if you're better off than what your baseline was? Yeah, classic end of one. Great question. Classic end of one is the latter. So the latter being, uh, let's evaluate how you are under one particular intervention. Uh, now, that's the traditionally those were done, those have been done in settings where you have only a few of these um, treatment periods, like an AB or an ABAB uh, or mm-hmm. an ABBA. So four to eight, uh, samples, yeah. Um, but then now, uh, with again, with um, this explosion of much more data, uh, if we're careful about it, uh, we can use that and then maybe shift it later on. Um, quick note: I talked to uh, Professor Susan Murphy a while ago. She gave a talk um, in grad school when I was graduating, and that's actually what got me interested in N of one. She didn't mention it, but of course, she does a lot of stuff with dynamic treatment regimes, and that got me interested in doing something. Uh, with personalized sort of inference in some way, some kind of personalization. And then I stumbled onto N of one very quickly thereafter. And we've talked and she said, she said in a brief uh, conversation, like, it's interesting, right? They're very opposite. With N of one, you don't want the outcome at a given time point to change your treatment. But you do want that in dynamic treatment regime. That's the whole thing. Yeah. You're trying to optimize this longer term study period goal, right? So yeah, but they're, you know, we're, we both agree they're, they're complementary in that sense, just very different situations mm-hmm. uh, when you drill down to that level. Yeah. And it never hurts to have a, a nugget of wisdom from Susan Murphy, um, just, you know, to drop <laughs> in a conversation. If, if you have any other of those, just feel free to uh, share them with the audience. Um, yeah. 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 Um, I, yeah. It was, I really appreciate it because, you know, it's, it's her. So yeah. like, oh, I'm on, I'm not on the wrong, the completely wrong path. Okay. Uh-huh. So, like, like yeah. a medieval uh, noble distributing alms. She, she gives her, right. uh, her thoughts yeah. about, um, <laughs> about these things. Yeah. No, I've, um, for those who are just listening, um, if you really do want to uh, hear some excellent discussions on wearables and just a very engaging speaker um, who also happens to be very good at, getting things correct, uh, which doesn't hurt either. You know, uh, Susan Murphy, definitely uh, check her out. She's everywhere on YouTube. Um, um, but yeah, so definitely do that. Um, maybe we'll be able to, maybe we'll even be able to get her on at some point. Um, but yeah, yes. um, what uh, one of the other uh, bits that I wanted to cover was um, the hard question, which is effectively, um, obviously, it doesn't help if two proponents of n of one type studies that so I view it as sort of this like personal adventure are talking. What if the people who are more skeptical and uh, disagreeable to these studies, what are their primary challenges? Like if we had to just, uh, uh, you know, um, steel man, the argument, what, 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 what would it be? I so love steel that man question. The counter argument. Yeah. 
Yes, I love it because I just got such a question uh, okay. presented that I hadn't thought of. Uh, to be honest, a lot of the challenges I've I've heard are the ones we brought up, which is not you know how do you account for generalizability? Um, how do you uh, get people to be engaged? So we've covered those. One of the aspects I hadn't really thought about, to my chagrin, as a former uh, clinical biostatistician, um, was how are you going to assess the safety and efficacy of that thing? Um, the mm-hmm. current FDA framework, you know, if we want to uh, use this method as more of a, a treatment, kind of like a dynamic uh, treatment regime, how do we? How does that fit into this framework? Because this is the framework we have to work with. Um, I say to my chagrin because I was swimming in that framework when I was doing SAS program work mm-hmm. uh, as a master statistician. So, um, so I had to think about it, and I responded uh, to uh, the person. Um, afterwards by email, you know, I said like, that's a really great, great question. I hadn't thought about it. Um, there's a larger question at work there because so stepping away, uh, yeah. stepping up a little bit, the larger critique was, um, so these are great methods that are really amenable to, in, in their understanding, they weren't um, a behavioral scientist, but in the behavioral world, they, they seem to be really amenable to those goals. I'm trying to help you specifically with this behavioral pattern. Mm-hmm. But in the clinical world, we're, you know, for better and worse, we're after average treatment effects over large populations of people. Um, so if I think that's why N of ones haven't really been seen on the clinical side. And I said, I turned it back and I said, that's a great point. Um, perhaps one of the inroads we need to start making then is how does the, how do these fit in? Um, mm-hmm. I've seen, like in the literature, Naipa uh, Duan uh, uh, and Rich Kravitz and Chris Schmid, uh, who are three of the biggest names in N of One, uh, Chris and Naipa are both statisticians, and Rich is a physician. Uh, they wrote a paper that that kind of explained where N of Ones are usually seen as a mm-hmm. clinical decision-making tool that helps tailor a treatment for a patient. Uh, and a treatment here, uh, by a treatment, I mean uh, a therapy, a drug therapy. Um, and so... Um, I thought of a conversation I had at work uh, on my data science team with a coworker who's also a practicing physician. And we were talking about, yeah, you know, it's interesting how these RCTs, they're really based off of these um, deductive scientific methods that are really great at the population level. But when, when I'm, a phys- I'm a clinician, they, they don't help me as, as well. They're not tailored to clinical decision-making. They're tailored to making broad sort of policy type uh, recommendations, um, which you know, it's it, it works in many cases, but it's it's sort of a disconnect. So, anyways, um, I'll stop there. <laughs> actually, uh, no, I, I wouldn't mind actually just hitting off that because you you've said uh, about three or four interesting things, particularly interesting <laughs> things, if you will, um, <laughs> that I wouldn't mind giving a little bit more time. Um, although I'll probably only remember two of them by the time we've covered the. Uh, yeah, but yeah. So, first of all, you said that um, these clinical trials are primarily deductive. Is that because essentially we have a pre-specified hypothesis, and uh, that um, when we're collecting the when we have pre-specified hypothesis about a uh, population or group-wide effect, and um, the entire purpose of the experiment, the end result is that we are either going to deductively uh, falsify that hypothesis, or we're going to fail to falsify that hypothesis. So is that is that your main? Oh, so is that the logical pathway that you're describing there? Or did I miss something? Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, side note, um, props to Padre Asclepius because I actually learned a lot of these from a previous episode um, in tandem with uh, talking to uh, 
folks at work who are really into abductive versus inductive versus deductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's how I was thinking about it. Confirmatory uh, studies. That's what RCTs are. Mm -hmm. Bread cool. and butter, right? And then just to uh, just to do little building blocks here, just um, so that I understand, when we're talking about uh, N of one studies being more inductive, is the it's because the primary challenge here is like, okay, cool, we've proved it for. Our, I wouldn't say proved. We have very strong evidence for one person. And so the inductive element can be one of two ways. One, that this uh, benefit will continue for this one individual under observation. And that seems less um, that seems less of a leap, uh, less of an evidentiary leap, than saying, now we suspect that we should try this for another person. Um, and effectively, the, it, this seems like a very much larger leap because by definition of N of one, we've only observed this one person. So it's we were we have a lot of information on this one person, but the challenge is, you know, inductively, can we now apply it to the next person the way that we want? Yeah, that is fantastic because I hadn't even gotten to that level yet. I was uh, I was talking to I work on a data science team and we talk about how a lot of our work is abductive, mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, and I hadn't uh, even gotten to the point of thinking about an end of one in that way. But yes, it, it really is right. You're you're trying to figure out a general rule through repetition uh, just for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next step to build up to an RCT level would be, okay, now we have that same process from somebody else. Now we're starting to build up perhaps a general rule across patients, yeah. across participants. Yeah. And that will then maybe in the idealized design lead you to deductive, where it's like, now we have this general concept of across mm -hmm. people. Let's test it out. Yeah, let's deductively assess this statement about a more generalized population. Um, yep. Yeah, and I'm just to, just to be completely fair, because it's not correct to say, for example, that um, that there's no inductive leap from a randomized control trial to the general population. It's just that it seems less crazy because the fact that going from you know 30 or 100 people. To, I, I don't know why I jumped to the central limit theorem thirty, but you know the, the <laughs> idea that you uh, are, that you're jumping from um, dozens or hundreds of people to a whole population seems like less of an inductive leap generally than does the idea that you'd be jumping from one person to that very second person um, because you've essentially never tested other people. So now, of course, there are other issues there, subgroup analysis, things like that. Um, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. um, there's a lot, lots going on there, but so I, I wouldn't say. Uh, the inductive challenge is not a unique is not unique to stats of one or in of one type challenges. Um, but yeah. I guess yeah. But the reason I, I wanted to sort of burrow down on this is obviously what brought us to this conversation was the um, safety was the, was sort of these safety issues, and that that to me seems like a real conundrum. Where um, and I was hoping that you just take it, but maybe we should just help for us to think through it together for a second. Um, I can help seed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, please do. Yeah, so in, in sort of my, uh, my, uh, my congenial rebuttal to mm -hmm. uh, this critique, I brought up uh, an example from my, past my immediate past experience, which is um, when it's a behavioral intervention, uh, say for like a coaching intervention mediated through uh, an app or device uh, for a chronic condition, that's great for N of 1. It's repetitive, it's chronic, and uh, there's an intervention that's that can be tailored to one person. You can test out different versions of it, yada, yada. Okay, great. Um, let's assume, uh, as as I, I think is often done on the behavioral side, like that these these things are safe. They're, they're, you're not going to cause somebody to do immediate harm to themselves in, in that way, right? Or, yeah, because it's behavioral. There's no, uh, there's no drug involved. Mm -hmm. Now, what if we pair that with a drug, a therapy that's already um, maybe in phase two, 
so it's passed its safety checks. Um, so just, now, uh, just for people who aren't familiar, by being passed sa- phase two, it means phase one is to test safety specifically. So uh, at the very least, we have some broad reason to believe that it is not acutely, for example, poisonous or something like that. Is that your calls? Okay, cool. Yeah, so, yep. so go on, please. Yep. Um, and so, uh, and so for me, uh, I don't know if it's quite a straw man, but um, I was already in this example. I was already assuming, <clears throat> excuse me, that the behavioral, <clears throat> excuse me, that the behavioral intervention was safe <laughs> by mm-hmm. itself. The question would be if we combine it with this drug, where part of the behavior is take this dosage of drug, take this dosage of drug. Um, now maybe there's a safety question when it's mm-hmm. combined with this drug. So that's as much, that's as far as I got mm-hmm. in that thought example, but maybe that's one place to start assessing uh, the safety of uh, this type of tailored uh, treatment. Because you, you maybe only want to do uh, four rounds of uh, treatment on and off uh, because you're now testing the safety of it mm-hmm. for one person. Um <clears throat> So yeah, I'll stop there for now. But yeah, no, no, that, that is helpful because um, you know, the, the the challenge for me is you know when when you think I'm not sure quite why, but it seems for me that the ability to evaluate the efficacy by observing an n of one study, it seems a lot less of a challenge to go from one person n of one to the next n of one, um, than it does for me to assess the safety. Of that very same thing, um, and I perhaps that's just a complete logical hangup. But at the same time, perhaps not, because effectively, one is you. Um, oh, maybe, maybe this might be why I have that sort of gut feeling um, that when we are doing in of one, we have a very strong uh, belief about what the underlying uh, causal mechanism is, and I'm, I'm using causal loose, super loosely there. Um, but basically, we have an underlying idea of what the mechanism is that is generating the change. Um, and so effectively, we're, the value of N of 1 is it really lets us hone in on that one person and hone in on that one mechanism. You know, you, you go run, you sweat. There's like, if the outcome is sweating, you run. You know, we have a pretty good causal understanding of that. But with safety, on the other hand, I feel as if a large number of things can go wrong with safety. So as effectively, you have a single track for this benefit, whereas for safety, you can have many things that go wrong with an individual with safety. Um, maybe that's may so maybe that's sort of the distillation of my gut feeling on this. Um, but that isn't obviously a particularly well developed thought. Well, <clears throat> no, I like that because <clears throat> excuse me, I'm actually reminded of uh, you know this challenge of of safety being a, a bigger challenge than, than assessing efficacy. I'm reminded of again taking it back to let's just go back to drugs, uh, mm-hmm. the, the classical setting, right? Uh, and of one. Uh, trials are already used uh, and have been used in uh, a number of places, not many, but a number of them, uh, Australia in particular, um, where I think it's been supported at least by a university, if not by the Australian government, um, as clinical tools, not mm-hmm. as studies, as clinical tools to help tailor uh, a treatment for you or a, a drug-cocktail combination. So they're used in that way. Um, <clears throat> now, that's already past the stage of We've seen these, let's let's say, three drugs, and we've done RCTs. It's post-marketing. They're safe. They're efficacious on average. Mm-hmm. So now the, the clinician says, now let's try out different combinations and let's randomize them. There's your N of one. But it presumes that there's already a safe, uh, there's a safeness to these drugs. There's so, a generalized assessment that it's safe. 
So exactly, you're you're naturally at least very least falling into the tails of the generalized population. Um, yeah, um, no, but yeah, no. Actually, and as we're talking, uh, it's a great point because if you know if some of those safety outcomes uh, in a in a standard RCT, a standard phase uh, group based trial, have to do with um, serious adverse events as well as adverse events. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I I don't want to be too morbid here, but if that happens with people and somebody um, unfortunately passes away during a safety uh, assessment, um, there are other people in that safety assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do it to yourself, well, there there are no other selves, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like, <laughs> out of five people, you know, one one dies. Out of, now, out of five of me, one of them dies. The, yeah. The other ones are no longer there. So that's a great point. Um, there might have to be a pre-screening of uh, th- whatever the intervention is, drug or behavior. We've already established some kind of baseline safety. So maybe this really goes in the efficacy bucket of phase two trials. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where an N of one uh, approach can be used or considered to be used. Yeah. We found this to be generally safe. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> how yeah. do we tailor? Yeah. I mean, especially because like, I guess the way that I would say it is like, because um, as you as you know, when something goes wrong in a clinical, well, when individual people have extreme adverse events in clinical trials, there's usually a team of people who then study that event to find out what happened. Um, and so obviously that's a very broad generalization of how it's done, but I think that generally holds true. Um, mm-hmm. I, that statement's le- more correct than it is wrong um, at the very least. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, when it when it comes to essentially trying these things with just now one individual, especially knowing now that um you you have this sort of one shot optimization type uh, situation, um, it seems that for example, there's nothing though stopping people from assessing this one individual in advance and trying to simply infer whether or not they're at an unusually high risk. Um, for example, so that. Um, the, 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 there'd be nothing essentially. You you do your pre-flight um, check before takeoff, um, mm-hmm. and that on these end of end of one processes, when you are trying to really ramp them up, um, when you're trying to you know uh, ramp them up, that uh, you would essentially do your pre-flight check. Um, and maybe I'm taking that for granted, but um, am I am I assuming yeah. something that I, I am? I no. assume I'm taking yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I, I think if I understand correctly, that sounds about right. Um, the the really the big class of people that I was exposed to with this sort of thinking were uh, folks from quantified self, so mm-hmm. these highly engaged group of community yeah. that really wants to understand themselves and how do I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're you know intimately aware of what's safe for themselves, and within these bounds, now I can try to tailor my understanding of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's you know uh, regulating my own blood glucose in the really kind of extreme cases that really pushes the safety bound mm-hmm. versus something where how do I optimize my runtime mm-hmm. uh, or my, my runtime? So well, is, it, is it a minimization <laughs> problem? Because I could help you with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't exactly. go outside. <laughs> yeah, stay inside. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's that sounds right to me. So. Yeah. And cool. Um, I guess just as a quick disclaimer, um, th- this conversation is literally me just freely thinking. So obviously I'm not dispensing any form of medical device or providing a sound scientific um, uh, consensus or of any sort of this. Uh, basically, Eric was kind enough to uh, bring up this 
topic to me in advance. And I thought, well, why don't we just talk about it and I can learn about it some more uh, beyond what are sort of my own sort of individual uh, ignorance-based conjectures. So I think, so I do appreciate you, Eric, coming on and just sort of letting me like freely ask questions and prod around at different ideas. So thanks, uh, thanks for doing that. Um, I will just claim the same thing. Cool. About. All right. We are all freewheeling right now. Uh, I'm loving this conversation because I'm thinking of things, talking to you that I haven't mm-hmm. really thought of before. Yeah. So yeah, carry yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was it was it is something that I'm going to start doing with the podcast because uh, that uh, one of the things I really enjoyed uh, back when I was um, in the UK doing my doctoral work was um, when my supervisor would essentially send people to me, and so they they would have like a problem in the area that I had more or less probably had some form of success with just given that we're all doing the uh, biomedical uh, patient monitoring and time series monitoring and anomaly detection type work. And essentially, they bring problems to me and sort of just bring up plots and we sit together and just go through things and just start mapping out ideas and sort of critically evaluating things on the fly. And I think that it's something that uh, a lot of grad students, for example, could benefit from, where essentially you just get a third-party, freewheeling, thought-providing, picture-drawing type of mentor, um, just to give you some ideas where you go. And I think the advantage of putting in a podcast form is that as you are well aware, the moment you walk away from your supervisor, you immediately forget everything that they said. Um, <laughs> that like, it's that, that, that thing with the bubble where the moment you walk away from your supervisor's bubble of knowledge, is like, oh, what the hell did they just say? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was good, but now I've totally forgotten <laughs> it. And um, the advantage of recording on podcasts is that you can go back and listen. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do appreciate this form of just like, going through and talking about it. Um, you've done stuff other than uh, in of one studies though, right? Like you, you, I mean, you, the other half, there's the other half or like 75% of your research that isn't in of one studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's talk about that. The, yeah, that's my, that's really my core, but the larger umbrella of my core is causal inference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very much, you know, I remember, I think uh, uh, Butch Sayadis, Sayadis uh, and, um, Oh, I'm forgetting his partner's name. Oh, I feel so Mary bad. Davidian. Thank you. Yep. It's just like, why do I forget? But uh, they, you know, they, I, they, I, I, see... I know my NC State. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, you, I'm definitely you, you the... came into my ballpark right there. That's right. <laughs> I exactly. Bat, I, was, I was ready to bat that one. <laughs> I remember seeing that on your LinkedIn profile. I'm like, ah, okay. So yeah, I'm I'm the I'm the Carolina person. So <laughs> um, but I remember seeing them. You're the Carolina at, person. That f- means that you do remember, you just don't want to admit it. <laughs> That's that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's all about my advisor. Dang it, Hudgens. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I remember they said in a number of their talks that I really you know appreciated. Super humble, like you know we're just the evangelists. That we didn't. These aren't the. These are like uh, the Ruben and Robbins camp and Hernan, and it's their methods, and we're just the evangelists. So I uh, I kind of uh, I don't know why I thought of that. What? How did we see this line of thought? Well, I mean, they they do work in a lot of the like dynamic treatment regime. Um, so when I think about those things, I can't help but think about uh, Marie Davidian. Um. That's right. Yeah. Um, yes. So I was uh, I was bringing it to uh, ask answering your question about like my wider scope of work mm-hmm. um, yep. and causal inference is really the the thing that's in my statistical heart at my mm-hmm. core. Uh, but I'm very much uh, first principles. You know, I focus on uh, really just like it's all about you know like uh, reweighting uh, your your linearized model if you have that or random forest. Uh, like the first principles of like what is a confounder and how do we adjust for it. Um, mm-hmm. I like. Uh, the more advanced methods, but I don't really follow them. And I say that because I work in a data science world where 
we have, I have a lot of really awesome, amazing colleagues who are experts at these, you know, fancier, newer models that aren't as statistically well characterized. Mm-hmm. Um, and my point to them is this is a framework that is model agnostic in many ways. It's all about the logic between confounders and, and outcomes and treatments and mm-hmm. selection bias. And how do they fit in this? There's arrows you can draw, kind of like that dag back there. Mm-hmm. But the model between that, that's where you all come in. Um, and I'm here to help you um, adjust that if you want to um, you know, posit a possible treatment effect uh, when you have observed data, which is what a lot of our data are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just, just real quickly, because um, you've said some interesting things. One, um, and I'll, I'll list off the questions and we can answer them in whatever order you wish to or not. Um, but uh, <laughs> one, you know, when you say you know, first principles, what does first principles mean to you? Because it means uh, specific things to me in different contexts, um, because obviously the principles change a bit, um, or at least the first bit changes a bit. Um, and the other bit is when you talk about these more advanced uh, methods, uh, can you specifically name the ones that you're thinking about just so that I'm a bit clearer? Um, yeah, sure. So um, to your first question, my first principles, I, that's my loose way of saying, uh, I really just uh, uh, like talking about the framework, uh, mm-hmm. the, the definitions. This is what a confounder is, and this is how it affects your, or biases your treatment effect estimate. Cool. And then work from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, like... You know, if I if I died tomorrow and you put an equation on my grave, it would be the law of total expectation. Because Fair my enough. friend, that is what I use day in and day out. And <laughs> and and other data scientists who don't have statistical backgrounds, um, I my imposter syndrome kicks up because I'm like, but we learned this in like our first year, first or second year. I this is clearly something you know, right? And I realized, oh no, it's like I I they're relying on me to explain it mm-hmm. and how to use it, right? Anyway, so that's what I mean by first principles. Um, also, things like statistical significance and just reminding people about how, as statisticians, we're trained to uh, be counterintuitive, to go against the this intuition to find meaning in a statistical significant finding when that's not what it means, mm-hmm. to find causation when there's no correlation. That's our natural urge. Yeah, to, anyway, to go so, against when data drives the conclusion as opposed to other principles driving the conclusion. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would um, asterisk amend that and say data and your brain. Yeah, okay. <laughs> data and your brain is like your brain is saying there's something causal here, and we're trained to go against that. That's the mm-hmm. natural urge. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, and to your second point, by advanced methods, I mean uh, frequently they they do end up being uh, linearized models, but mm-hmm. the more advanced things are, uh, uh, you know, re- like regularized, cross-validated uh, regression. Mm-hmm. Uh, both linear and logistic, and um, so any any sort of uh, predictive models or models that are regularized in ways that aren't, for example, Bayesian regularization that don't have a direct probabilistic interpretation, for example. So, like a lin- um, or, or is it? Uh, I mean, obviously, if you have a big scope of things that are beyond just uh, the most basic models. But I'm just trying to figure out, like, what well, what are the ones that pop up um, in your neck of the woods? Yeah, so uh, things like random forests, mm-hmm. um, and not really so much neural nets at all at, at this point, at least. Um, but yeah, uh, random forests would would probably be the that's the one that I think of most. Um, and then aside from that, just it's it's even just the the early part of the elements of statistical learning textbook, right? Nothing in the later parts, just mm-hmm. straight up regularized GLM 
rainforests. Uh, so those kinds of models. Yeah, I have to admit, um, usually when I'm looking for a like a data science or statistical straw man, I usually think of like the random forest fanatics from like the early 2010s um, because mm. they essentially. Uh, I mean, I, I think it was more of a. Um, there were a number of sort of intellectual and academic trends around that topic where it's like, yeah, random forest is really cool and it's a smart idea. Like, it's if if you had someone saying like, what is one way that we could sort of try to take a data set and not have to really specify a lot of the features and still figure out generally what is a good mapping of one of these things on the other. Obviously, Bremen did a fantastic job at proposing something. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of the practitioners and people who use those methods um, began to forgo some of the scientific intuition that you would hope that people who were doing data analysis would have adhered to. Um, and obviously, I know that's a very hand-wavy thing. I'll probably cover it in some other things in some like a longer rant that's dedicated to that topic. Um, but I also see a lot of um, neural net, for example, practitioners following many of the same mistakes that I believe scientific mistakes in experimental planning mistakes that I saw people in uh, using doing with random forests back in the early 2010s. Mm. Um, and I realized that that totally like dates how <coughs> old I am uh, in lo looking at these things. But um, I, I, do, I do see that there is, I, I'm very sympathetic when you're saying, you know, we need to be uh, cognizant of the, you know, the causal challenges, the scientific challenges to using these methods, because I think that um, some of the promises of the models that are used can sort of hijack people's enthusiasm and that they do start coming to unfounded uh, beliefs from their data. Um, but anyway, rant over or pseudo rant over, um, <laughs> and we, we, we can go back to, um, so what are sort of the ways that you sort of help bring people back into uh, what you consider the statistically sound fold? Like how do you talk someone down from their, uh, from their random forest? Well, I mean, thankfully, uh, like at work, I have a uh, very, uh, um, uh, understanding and eager colleagues who um, <clears throat> most of whom have other backgrounds like neuroscience or mm -hmm. uh, electrical engineering, uh, computer science backgrounds who are mm -hmm. in our data science field, our data science team. Um, but they're very keen to get the science part right. Like they know yeah. that the science that they knew was experimental. And so they're making assumptions about uh, observational data sets that mm -hmm. um, they need help understanding. Uh, so they're very keen to learn that, um, which really helps a lot. So because of that, we have a lot of internal discussions or uh, little weekly seminars uh, and side conversations that pop up about what is the role of um, like a p-value in this setting? Uh, how do we prevent p-hacking? How do we prevent uh, harking, um, hypothesizing after the mm -hmm. results are known? How do we prevent overfitting? Um, very related uh, topics, right, that have to do with... Um, it's really this distinction of, okay, so if we have our data set and we we um, we do some exploration with it, um, how do we be careful about reporting that we that's what we did? And mm -hmm. now here are our findings versus um, versus a lot of our our client work, which is very much like RCT. It's like here's our our our, our a priori hypotheses. Mm -hmm. Now we report this. And then there's inv invariably an exploratory part. So it's like, how do we be careful and communicate with our clients that it's important it's important to separate those two sets of conclusions. Yeah. And it's for their good. It's like you want to make, you know, improve your product or your service. You don't want to overgeneralize mm -hmm. uh, or, or say say our findings really hold to this level when 
this part of the study does, but then this part is more, here's how you might try to improve your service to your product afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that is helpful. Well, um, I know that we only have a little bit more time left, but um, obviously you work in a large number of areas that I enjoy discussing. What would maybe be, uh, I'll, I'll give you the the honor of the, uh, the third and final topic. Uh, what would you like to uh, kick around for a few minutes? Oh, the third and final. Okay. Um, or we can just burrow down on one of the previous ones if you'd like. No, I guess, I mean, the, the only other topic I, uh, that's, that's become really close to my heart uh, has been um, outreach and representation. Um, I recently joined the uh, Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Committee at the ASA. The, the Jedi. Jedi. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on the professional development uh, subcommittee. And uh, a lot of these issues really sort of uh, bubbled up for me. Uh, they have to do with representation, which as a statistician, it's like, ah, yes, representation. How do we adjust our estimates uh, post-data collection or mm-hmm. hopefully recruit more people into the sample pre-data collection? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's, it seems like uh, the, the goal should be enrichment. It's, it's, it's an enrichment process, not a uh, post-hoc uh, adjustment if yeah, you want and, to over-intellectualize on that. It's like, you just try, try to do some more pre, pre-trial enrichment for that one. No, I, and you know, the the no, totally. Um, and I'm such a geek about it because my dissertation was on a missing data method that involved inverse probability weighting. So I'm like, yes, we could do all the post-adjustment. And it's like, no, no, no. We, we should nip it in the butt at the beginning. <laughs> you know, five people representing a thousand, you could do that re-weighting, but it's really just five people in your sample. So mm-hmm. you're putting a lot on those five people to be highly randomly representative of the source population. Yeah, especially given that not all source populations evenly meet a uh, a 20% mark. Um, right, right. Just, just throwing, exactly. the, throwing that one out there. Um, yeah. Exactly, yep. Um, so anyway, I don't want to go too deep into it, but that that's that's really resonated with I think that statistical side of me. Uh, mm-hmm. It's representation. Um, a lot of it was actually born of uh, going to grad school in North Carolina. So originally I'm from California, and then before that the Philippines. And uh, I take it for granted uh, uh, how many uh, Filipinos there were in California, which is why I never really uh, it was never a part of my identity because there were just so many of us around. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to North Carolina. And guess what? Almost zero. Um, and so Asian people thought of like Chinese or Korean. People wouldn't really know where to put Filipinos. Uh, that made me more aware of this underrepresentation aspect of data collection, I guess. Uh, and it's also ballooned into uh, generally an advocacy for more representation um, in various parts of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the importance of that, because you can't draw conclusions. Uh, well, you can draw conclusions from a sample that is highly overrepresented in one respect, but then, you know, yeah. So that's pretty much the third topic, I guess. <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, honestly, if you haven't been, like, what what are people up to? What are they doing? It seems, um, it seems like the most immediate way, um, and least contentious one, would just simply be to try to increase the funnel, um, especially by one preparing people to enter the field and to. It seems to me that there's a real challenge here where effectively um, this is a rigor, it's a rigorous field and it's, but it's not unmanageable. You know, it's, it's the, the challenges are there, but the main thing is like, you just have to know that the challenges are not um, being you know directed at, at you personally. I mean, like, like uh, 
I went here for undergrad in math. Um, basically, <laughs> uh, the vast majority of my teachers for the first two years were mathematicians from Russia and the Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine, excuse me. Um, and so, uh, and you know, it, it, it was a tough, it was a tough process. Um, and you know, it, it was the, 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 there's no mercy in the grading, for example. Um, and, but it was, it was rigorous and you do get through it. And so I guess my, one of the things I'm curious coming, hearing coming out of this is, um, you know, what are they, what is the plan to actually proactively prepare people for the challenges that are required so that they can get their first success? Cause I think that's one of the other bits where uh, there's a high, um, there's a high initial emotional charge to entering this field where essentially you have to go and you have to get your, you know, your calculus challenges and your algebra, you know, your linear algebra challenges. And you do a lot of these things. Um, and you know, it's, it's, these are the, the rewards are abstract. Um, like they're, they're get, getting an A on your, uh, calculus AB exam is not the same as delivering, you know, a really cool N of one trial or figuring out how to do personalized Gaussian processes for patients in the hospitals. One is vastly more rewarding than the other. So the challenge is how do we get people, how, how do we get people to enjoy those initial successes? And it seems to me that that's a pretty hard challenge. Um, yeah. Especially because you have uh, to start in high school to do it. Um, you know, it's yeah. just with high school prep. Yeah, that's an awesome question. I love it because um, because I'm not prepared to answer it. <laughs> and so it makes me think. I like thinking on the fly. Um, more so than I think I do. Come to think of it. Anyway, um, so I think there's two uh, aspects to this uh, question here that I'm thinking of. Uh, uh, well, the question itself is speaking to one of two aspects I was thinking of when I brought the topic up. One is sort of general representation. Um, so in society and different professions of different underrepresented groups, that's a very broad question. Uh, but the one you're asking about does directly have to do with, uh, say, my work at the ASA with professional development. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have a good answer, but yeah, we'll have to look at um, how do we, you know, maybe do, uh, maybe the outcome is to um, help recruit more people from underrepresented groups uh, into these fields. Does that involve, if, it's almost like engagement. So how do we increase engagement? Uh, how do we recruit? Do we go to high schools uh, to do career fairs? That's an idea that's been floated around either at my subcommittee at ASA or within Evidation Health where I work, where we're having the same exact conversations. Um, just as a, a heads up, yeah, like our sample of... Um, we, have, we have an app that has uh, almost maybe over 4 million app users mm -hmm. uh, that are highly uh, female and highly white. Uh, and so we've thought deeply inside and started coming up with ways for like both on the front end and the back end, how do we recruit uh, to more match the population we're interested in and how do we adjust afterwards? Mm -hmm. So anyways, yeah, recruitment, uh, no good answer. Uh, I've heard uh, outreaches and boot camps are, are a start to that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, also, okay, so one more note is part of the representation I've learned is it helps to see, it really does help to see somebody like you in this uh, role, in like a statistician or a data science role. Um, so if you know, so I try to do that myself. I'm like, hey, look, I'm Filipino-American from the Philippines. I'm a data scientist and a biostatistician. Um, and uh, folks in my community don't often see that, uh, that data point. Mm -hmm. So if the data point's not on the graph, uh, how can they aspire you can't towards see it? it. Yeah, like, yeah, how, exactly. How can you understand that this is a feasible option for your future if you're not exactly. seeing a tangible example of it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's just a weird counterfactual yeah. at that point. Um, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yep. Damn, we've we've already over intellectualized it again. But um, <laughs> I guess the other bit though is because uh, this is something. Um, in addition to just drawing people in, because I think, like, here's the hard challenge. Though. It's not just about drawing people in, though. It's making sure that they succeed once they get there. And yep. uh, the the question is, is it is it fair to have a cri- a criterion like anyone who wants to be a statistician or anyone who wants to be a data scientist can? And so, like one, you know, you you let them know people know that this is an option. And two, if they've expressed interest, you know, there's an element where it's just it's just feel good if you're just recruiting people to let them fail once they right. once they get to the next point. It's like, well, who who's actually setting aside their time to go and talk to people to say like, oh, here is this specific student, and they are good at these specific tasks, which will help them mm-hmm. in their career. They are challenging these specific tasks. I need to make sure that this does not become a roadblock so that it prevents them from their long-term future. You don't want them to get caught in some short-term minimum just because they have mm-hmm. one class or something and essentially get sidetracked from this greater progression, especially because, you know, as anyone practicing data science or statistics knows, um, these classes is these classes basically have marginal, if any, real predictive ability on their ability to go and actually execute good data science work, you know, because that's there are many ways that your skills can manifest in in the job that you know but mm-hmm. there's relatively few where they can manifest in the classroom setting and so um that that's something that I would be very eager to see where they say here's an explicit thing and um I know I've been just just for what it's worth privately I've been coaching and talking to a number of people who are interested in trying to get into data science jobs um mm. and um how's they they are not from my they are not from my background um and the, the but the fact is um sitting down and giving them half an hour in february and giving them explicit advice following up with them you know once or twice a week even if it's just like i know you're looking for a job here's a new job offering that i saw because you know what it's easier to get a job uh, offering if you have a phd from oxford university it's easy to get a job offering if you have a phd from unc chapel hill like those aren't competitive things, but the thing is, the advertisement is it's all getting funneled towards those people who already have a lot of options, as opposed to like, well, why don't you give these other people a chance? Um, and you don't have to put them in at a PhD level because they, mm-hmm. you know they're they're undergraduate or master students. And well, why isn't their information being funneled? Why why is it like, like I the the number of job opportunities I forward to early career data scientists who have uh, pinged me on LinkedIn and we've had you know actual face to face conversations. Um, I have to say, I probably spend about ninety minutes a week just like clicking when when I, when I see these opportunities. <laughs> like, okay, it's like ping this person, ping this person, ping per- this person. Um, I even have a list of like where their regional location is, um, so that I know that I'm sending them jobs that are useful. Because one thing that's really annoying is you see your ideal job and it's on the other side of the country. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry, I know I know that we're we're going off on a bit, but given that you are on, I, I fear that this is about as uh, high efficiency as a time to. Tell that since you're on the Jedi, the Jedi Council, so to say. Um, That's right. <laughs> um, and having been both both a Star Wars and a Star Trek fan, I mm-hmm. extra appreciate being on that council. But your input um, is super valuable. I'm actually, uh, I, I, you know, I'd love it if you uh, attended one of our meetings, professional development, or at least after this podcast, we could talk on the side, and I can distill some of uh, your ideas to bring to the committee. Um, I think they're. And anything helps at this point. It's a fairly mm-hmm. new committee uh, at this at this stage. Um, it's been around for a few years, but 
to this degree. It's fairly new. Um, so I'll bring those there. Um, there is a side, it's not professional development related, but mm-hmm. if it goes back to representation that has resonated with me, that's not, uh, that doesn't have to do with traditional, you know, underrepresented groups based off protected attributes, race, sex, age, and stuff. Um, and this harkens back to a post I wrote a year ago when the pandemic first started, which is that biostatisticians are the overlooked data scientists from public health. You see a lot of like media buzz about, you know, data scientists putting up graphs and pretending to be epidemiologists and mm-hmm. well-wishing, but, um, which is good. But, um, but I was like raising the flag being like, hello, we're underrepresented. We're, we, we've been doing this for years, but, um, but there's no sort of um, acknowledgement uh, publicly. So that, that's sort of the parallel that I think might be close also to things you think about. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's like, there's actually a simple explanation for this. Biostatisticians are a bunch of weirdos. Um, that is what I came up with. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it, it is actually, I think that um, if, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up on this thought, but I think that uh, biostatistics does, it represents a very interesting place in the sort of entire ecosystem of data analysis. Because for, the fact is, you know, I think, I would have to, well, you, you went to UNC, you went to UNC, um, you know, one of the uh, billionaire statisticians of the world is a biostatistician. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, Dennis Gilling. And so, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the other ones came from NC State and they're, I guess, agriculture and uh, predominantly biopharmaceuticals, you know, with SAS and where it um, it has really latched onto an industry. And the fact is, I think biostatistics, biostatistics I'm 50 to 75% sure has more or less dominated the statistical analysis landscape for a long period of time. Um, and where effectively a large number of statisticians who are coming out of school, you would be effect- expected to either enter academia or biostatistics. Um, and then there's a small amount who entered some other realm. And the fact is with the explosion of digital data, the explosion of data generated via software, um, that the landscape has grown Biostatistics has actually grown as well, but they occupy, they've lost market share effectively, mm-hmm. where um, <laughs> the, they, they've grown, but the pie has grown even bigger. And mm-hmm. um, so there is an awkward thing there where, um, yeah, I, I would say that they are, um, they are less represented in the entire data analysis space than they were before. I would venture to say that it's probably appropriate, but there is an element there that warrants discussion because the fact is, just because it's appropriate, like data security and things like that, uh, data wrangling, high uh, high performance com- computation, these are all part of the data analysis um, ecosystem. But um, they don't. We should not be losing the value, the massive value that biostatistics has brought to our field to date. And I think that that's probably the point of contention. Unless I'm putting words in your mouth, forgive me if I am. No, I really. Appreciate that because I I had not I had not fully appreciated the dominance of biostatistics. I was only seeing the the current underrepresentation of it, uh, which which which. So you'll find about me that I one of my uh, flaws and merits is I like drawing connections, even though, where they might not exist between <laughs> fields and between people. But um, but to your point, yeah, I like I appreciate knowing that that's it's true. It's like it 
I hadn't really thought about how much it's been a behemoth for many, many, many years now, decades even. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is one of those cases maybe where what I really want to say is statistical thinking is what needs to be more represented because Mm -hmm. that holds up the pillars of scientific thinking. um, Whereas a lot of data scientists aren't trained to recognize that. They there, there, there's a lot of um, um, work around exploratory studies, basically, uh, mm-hmm. and not as much knowledge about the confirmatory side of science, uh, which is what a lot of the traditional biostats methods are built around, um, which to my taste is that there's, it's problematic because it's like you're trying to use now tools that are built for a confirmatory study to do an exploratory study. Anyway, but yes, um, yeah, no, no, that, refined, that, sort of. that is appreciated. Sorry, I just interrupted you just to say no, that, no, no, I, no. that I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, um, it is appreciated because the fact is, um, and I'm just going to take a wild conjecture out here, that part of it is that because the challenges in the skill set that um, is required of date, modern data analysis in many fields, that um, scientific, uh, the priority of rigorous scientific thinking uh, might not be what kills you first. Whereas, you know, in biostatistics, not thinking scientifically will pretty much shut you down <laughs> fast. You know, like it's you, you, you're you're done if you don't do that from the get go. Whereas we have these other fields, and I, it's it's no insult to say that scientific thinking, or rigorous scientific thinking, is not required. We we hold scientific thinking in very high regard for good reason. But the fact is, there are plenty of areas where scientific thinking is not the primary priority. You know, like for example, if you're starving and you need to eat, you don't need to scientifically plan this one out. You just pop some food in your mouth. Um, and similarly, um, algorithms gotta eat. You know, if if you're doing some <laughs> massive um if you're if you're trying to power some piece of software that has a massive amount of data, um, you know, laboring over uh over confounding of of a certain uh, subpopulation of clicks is not the priority there. And so essentially the, the spectrum of priorities has changed and we've developed tools around that, but it's also time to like rein back and say, well, where, where is the scientific thinking now? Again, the priority because we've now gotten these things sorted out. So yeah, no, I definitely appreciate it. Um, and again, it's, it's highly subjective, but it's definitely something worth parsing through. Yeah, I think I think uh, I feel like you and I both occupy this space where, or at least I won't speak for you, but for me, I, I've I've uh, when I entered data science three years ago, I, I I you know would say like I'm a biostatistician or a statistician at least at my core and and whatnot. And in the last three and a half or so years, I've been in health data science, uh, not biostatistics. I've realized I really am like solidly between these worlds because mm-hmm. I do give pushback to the stat side as well from the data science side, where it's like well. Good luck running that model because that's great that you want to run, um, you know, multiple uh, imputation chain equations. Good luck running it on this huge data set of a billion rows. Mm-hmm. Have fun with that. I'll see you in like a few hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and for and the client needs it like three months from now. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? It's mm-hmm. super rigorous, but so yeah. So I yeah, just all that to say, I find myself in that sort of dialectic as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely <laughs> is. Um... I, th- I think there is a subset of people who are essentially, uh, they either are coming from another field into sort of the more traditional data sciences, or they're simply old, uh, you know, like, <laughs> like me, uh, where, you know, they, they've just been around where before these changes happened. And, um, you know, like I, I do recall plenty of times where feeling um, agitated at the slowness and the sort of conservatism of a lot of biostatistics, where it's just like... Um, where effectively they wouldn't be willing to come to what I would consider to be a fairly, the most reasonable conclusion from the data because it did not fit a specific 
hyper rigorous scientific paradigm. And um, it's like, yes, it, did, it does not fit this perfect uh, square peg, but surely this is the correct conclusion to come to it anyway. And we can also just say, and we're slightly uncertain that it's perfectly that. Um, but at the same time, um, trying to also make sure that no one's going completely, you know, crazy um, with their lack of scientific rigor when it's needed. Um, so right. yeah, cool. <laughs> cool. Well, Eric, I really appreciate your time today. This is uh, this has been fun, and um, maybe we will just um, we'll choose another topic in the future and just kick it around some. That would be awesome. Cool. Uh, just quickly before you go, uh, where should uh, the guests uh, pop in if they want to read a little bit more about your work? I'll pop it in the description, but if you want to, uh, in the, the video description. But um, Sure. For for my NF1 work, uh, Stats of One, uh, statsofone.org. Uh, and then more about my work, uh, you can go to my website, ericjdaza.com, um, and you'll find a broader scope of sort of my work there, my background. Cool. Well, Eric, thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Really enjoyed this. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed on the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.